Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. HIV is still an issue in Montgomery County. The more open we're able to talk about HIV, we treat it like any other health prevention. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. People who are not HIV positive who may be at high risk for contracting the disease. This is a good choice for you. It's just a way for you to sort of take control and say, I'm going to do this to protect myself. Do it for them. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about PrEP, the HIV prevention medication. Visit doitforyoumc.org. What's happening, Rush Nation? Have I got a treat for you? Not only for you, it's a treat for me. Very pleased to be joined tonight by John Larb, better known as the Gridiron Scholar. You can find him over on Twitter at GridironSkull91. You may have also seen his work over at footballdiehards.com and the CFF on Campus podcast. He's an incredibly busy man, but we're delighted to be joined by him tonight. John is a college fantasy football expert and a historian and has come to enrich our knowledge of both the college game and hopefully give us some college football fantasy advice as well. John, it is an absolute pleasure to have you with us. How are you, friend? I'm doing great. You know, I'm making the best of everything. It's been a very challenging year for everyone. I try not to get too down. I have it pretty good compared to others. So I'm making it day by day. That's my just one day at a time and enjoy what I have for now. And that's absolutely the attitude in the times that we live in, one day at a time. I have to say, I was saying before about everything you're involved with, as well as as well as the day job, you're, you're a teacher by trade as well. So you've got an incredibly busy time in and out of the classroom, but you've also put some uh, pretty impressive Halloween decorations up outside the house as well this week. <laughs> yeah, we kind of like our balloons. They're my daughter's favorite thing. I kind of like it. I get into it now. We have two out front. 
And, um, you know, unfortunately, my daughter isn't, we're probably not going to be able to celebrate Halloween like in the past. So at least we're mm-hmm. doing the best we can. It's not going to be the same, but that's all right. Hopefully it's just one year. But yeah, at least we got the balloons and I like them. They look cool. A dragon and a cat. And it gives something for the neighbors to look out the window and see when they're, <laughs> when they're headed to work in the morning. And yeah. So um, you're here to sort of educate us on, on college ball. I'm very much a beginner and, and some of our listeners are too. Um, we spoke just a little bit about life in Connecticut, but there, there's no games for UConn this year. Uh, what's, what's fall without your football team been like? So it was the be- my, my favorite thing I did with my um, my son, and we would go to every UConn football game that was home. We might, I guess maybe we missed one or two in the last five years because of rain late November. UConn's one and nine, and it's a pouring rain. <laughs> we might have missed one of those games. Um, and I always we went with my two best friends who I've known since um, middle school. So you're talking about friends who I've known for over forty years. Um, so it's, mm-hmm. it's a big, vague window in our life. It's, you know, um, it, the fun, it was more about the camaraderie. Uh, I, I grew up in the Northeast. So when I was a child, college football was not big in the Northeast. The closest I had was Penn state. And that's, okay. I'm going to guess about seven hours away. I've never actually been to Penn state, but it, could be a little longer. So depending on where you go, traffic. Um, the North college football was the Midwest, the West Coast, and the South. So I didn't grow mm-hmm. up around major college football. Now I loved it, so I watched it on television, but we didn't go see it live. Um, there was nothing. UConn was playing in the Yankee Conference in the 70s and 80s, which was a much lower conference. They would get 500 fans at a game. I'll never forget what really changed it for me. UConn beat Notre Dame, and I think it's 2009 or 2010. And this was before I was married, so I was at the bar with a couple friends watching UConn, Notre Dame. And I still can't believe we beat Notre Dame. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, there's five teams in Notre Dame. Is clearly one of those elite teams. So having grown up, watched Notre Dame, rooted mostly against Notre Dame my whole life to see UConn <laughs> beat them. And I said to my buddies, kind of half jokingly, why don't we get season tickets to UConn next year? And they're like, yeah, we should do it. And then about two months later, I said, you know, I really should look into this. And I and it found out they were $20 a ticket for season. So I was able to the see, season. you know, five or six UConn games for the equivalent of $20. They were in the Big East at the time. The first year we owned tickets, they went to the Fiesta Bowl against Oklahoma. They got killed. Um, obviously, over the last five years, the program's completely bottomed out. So I did get to mm-hmm. see the best years in UConn history. Um, but now it's more about friendship, having a few beers, getting something to eat. Yeah being out in the nice weather, except for when it's pouring rain in late November. Um, but I miss it. You know, it was, it's one of those things you look forward to during the fall, you know, um, not mm-hmm. being able to go is tough. Luckily there is college football, as you know, I know you're a big fan. So I have been watching it at home, but it isn't the same as going with my best friends and my son and my wife would go once a year, my daughters went with this, you know, so it was kind of a, and my brother and his family, we would usually go to the August game, you know, like maybe eight, 10, 12 people. 
So at least one game a year was a big kind of family. So, you know, tailgate, do all that. Obviously, we couldn't do that this year. So it's, it's, a, it's a hole. It's a hole in your life. But at least yeah. we got some football. And to be fair, when, when UConn decided that they, they weren't going to play a season back in May, it seems as though we won't get any college football at all. I mean, I, I personally am amazed that we're at this point where we're talking about a, a whole host of games on a Saturday. It's not great when you see, you know, Florida LSU postponed midweek. <laughs> I didn't ex- I didn't expect, you know, one, two, six games a week. I was expecting one or two games to be played. I will say this. I think the universities and the programs have done a very good job overall. Um, you know, it's funny because I'm doing my sleepers article and I'm always looking now, like by third, what games are canceled? What players do I have to update? Yeah. And my Friday spent like there's you, there's been lately one cancellation, you know, like Friday afternoon at three o'clock. And I'm like, oh, my God, I got to look at my lineups. I got to do this. Um, but luckily, I would say overall, the vast majority of games are going on that Florida LSU game had the makings of a classic, right? Bad Mm -hmm. defense, both teams desperate. I mean, it looked like it was going to be a shootout. But, you know, hopefully we'll get the game later in the year. And overall, I think it's been been a pleasure to watch, and it seems like the players are safe. You know, I I am concerned about the big crowds in some of the stadiums. I'm shocked that they're letting Mm -hmm. 20 people in, but that's what the university and the state decided. I don't live in those states. I wouldn't feel comfortable, but that's just me. I err on the side of caution. I have older parents, so I can't. I don't want to. There's 83 and 74, and the last thing I want to do is, you know, give them, uh, you know, know, at that age, it's it's a challenge, needless to say. As you said, it it really does depend on game to game, state to state. So some of the UK listeners are able to watch Notre Dame home games this year, and you can see a, a limited yeah. crowd. But then seeing the you know the, the Texas oh A&M my God, home crowd, the I mean, A&M, I was what's like, going on in Texas? Like, oh my God! Well, how many? They, it looked like they had twenty five thousand people in that. I was like, wow. You know, I was watching UCF Memphis, and I would say. My guess quickly, there was 5,000, which isn't a ton. And they definitely mm-hmm. seem to be more social distance. <laughs> like in Texas A&M, it don't look like they were socially distanced at all. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. So it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Like you said, programs are doing great in certain crowds. Maybe not so much. Well, and I suppose... You get wrapped up in the excitement of the game as well. You know, listen, if you're a if you're a Bama fan, that game against Georgia last weekend, ah. the excitement's gonna take over at some point, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. It was a good game. Alabama's nasty again, my friend. <laughs> Alabama's looking good. I still think it's it's Clemson's to to lose, but Alabama's looking good at the minute. <laughs> Najee Harris in particular. Um I saw an article this week that had Najee Harris as a sleeper. I'm sure it was Fox Sports. Had uh, Najee Harris as a draft sleeper. I'm thinking, who's sleeping on Najee Harris at the minute? It was actually, you know, I know what you're referring to now. It was ESPN with Todd McShay and, uh, right. and Mel Kuyper. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I don't even know how to react to that kind of statement. Because anyone with bare minimum knowledge of A, college football, or the NFL draft, We've known about Najee Harris for a real yeah. long time. Like, I'm like, 
Who are you? This is clickbait. Like, honestly, I'm just like philosophically against clickbait. So I will not click it. Like, I'm like, this is absurd. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, like, you cannot tell me Najee Harrison, Alabama is a sleeper. Please. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Well, if you hate, if you hate clickbait, I hope you're ready for the next six months <laughs> of people speculating that Trevor Lawrence is, is going back for his senior year. That's the clickbait <laughs> from, now until, or, from now until January. Or the Jets will get him. That's the two clickbaits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, listen. As a as a Jets fan, I feel very conflicted <laughs> about what what's going to happen. Um, so you mentioned before you, you said we talk about Najee Harris. You said about having a, a base knowledge of the college game, and it's it's a strange situation in the UK because the NFL grew from the college game. It, the, the pros grew out of out of the amateur game. Over here in in the UK, we have of course been exposed to the NFL on Sky Sports and then the London games. And so a lot of UK fans, uh, they have their NFL team, they have their knowledge of the NFL, and then they become aware and knowledgeable about the college game. Now, that's not to say that that that's the truth for every fan, because I know a lot of very knowledgeable college fans here in the UK, but for the most part, they're NFL fans who are, are now getting used to this new level of football. That is so very, very different to, to the average American fan who... You know, your college allegiance is is the strongest bond that you have when it comes to sports, right? So I love UConn basketball. That's where I started first. Obviously, the men and the women's basketball teams are amazing. Now, I didn't have Mm -hmm. the opportunity to go to UConn. I went to WestCon, which is a university school. It's part of the program, but it's not the Huskies. Um, my best friend went to UConn. So, I mean, I'm, I'm so old. I saw Patrick Ewing play at Georgetown against the Huskies in the eighties. So I, I lived okay. through the big East, the classic days when, and I remember when UConn basketball was awful, like they were the bomb of the big East. Um, but then they got great under Calhoun. Um, so I didn't, but I've grown love the Huskies. You know, I'm in the state. Yes. I mean, I, I do think so. I grew up a Michigan fan, but believe it or not, because my dad's okay. from Michigan, the state of Michigan. And as a kid in the seventies and eighties, the Wolverines were on almost every weekend. If you know the history of television, they used to only have one televised game a week. And ABC often showed in the Northeast Michigan and Notre Dame. I guess those are so those games are always on. And because my dad grew up in in Detroit, that was kind of I attracted to that. And UConn, like I said, UConn basketball was nothing. And neither was UConn football. But once they started winning basketball, my best friend and I, we watched it together and it became a social thing. Yes. I mean, so I can't even imagine. The point is, I love it and I didn't go there. So I can't even imagine, like, if you go to Alabama, if you go to Florida, if you go to Michigan, what it would be like the passion to go there. Now, I work with as a teacher. There's UConn graduates who teach in my city, in my district. And like some of them actually had season tickets to UConn basketball. They're hardcore, too. So I kind of see it. So, I mean, and most of it's basketball. When you do, if you live in the state of Connecticut, if you're a fan, the vast majority are because of the basketball programs. We're kind of the mm-hmm. we're kind of the minimum who love the football program or at least support it. But obviously, now I saw Michigan came into the rent at UConn, best game I've ever seen live. There was about forty six thousand fans that night. You couldn't get a seat. It it was the biz, the the sellout, the biggest tailgate, the biggest evening I ever saw. 
And I'm trying to think that must have been about 2014 or 15. Um, we almost beat Michigan. We didn't beat them that night, but we did lose. But it was that was probably the pinnacle, unfortunately, of the UConn. Since then, we've gone. <laughs> we had a home and home um, games with Michigan, and since then, we've been, you know, unfortunately, on a downward slope. So for you, it's it's easier to find yourself in that situation where you you find yourself a team. You know, I was in North Carolina years ago. Now I think it was. 2012 because it was the London Olympics and I was in North Carolina and uh, the family that I was staying with uh, one of the cousins of the family was a walk-on at NC State or hoping to be a walk-on at NC State and so everything was Wolfpack Um, and then sort of talking about uh, Duke and UNC it just it it was the the, the rivalry was so fierce now for us in the UK I would never feel like that about, you know, my university. Um, and I would, I, we wouldn't have that culture of going watching our, our sports teams play. So I guess sort of from a cultural and a historical perspective, it just, it just means so, so much more and, and, and vastly different things over there. Yeah. Cause my understanding, I've looked at the history not, I mean, of soccer in, in England, the universities mm-hmm. didn't develop the same equivalent, Right. So mm-hmm. because of that, the passion is different, right? I mean, football is a very – this idea and, – and I have some challenges with it as an educator. Don't get me wrong. They're, but the idea that universities basically have control of minor league football yeah. and that the fact that it dominates so much of their revenue and it dominates the campus – isn't necessarily the goal of higher education, right? I live in New Haven, mm-hmm. Connecticut. I go to Yale games, probably one or two a year. Used to go to more. Yale's Ivy League school. When Harvard comes in, they'll get 40,000 people. Any other game you can go between 3,000 and 8,000, right? Small little game, love the day. If it's September, beautiful day outside, enjoy it with the family, the kids. That's what probably college football should be about. And, hey, I'm going to get yelled at if an American hears this, but I love football. But it really shouldn't be in some ways dominated by colleges. Baseball has a minor league program. Yeah. Right? They pay for it themselves, and we're going through challenges. Major League Baseball wants to um, fold some of the minor league teams because they're not profitable. So I understand. Mm -hmm. But the idea that the NFL profits from minor league football on college campuses is still a very bizarre kind of cultural capitalistic socialism all wrapped up, which I, I I argue with times, at least you can argue the Mara family who started the New York giants. If you read about the grandfather, like he barely made it. When they started in the 20s and they went through the Great Depression, then World War II, like it's amazing what the Hallett, mm-hmm. George Hallis did in Chicago, what Mara did in New York, the history of the NFL. But these were families who made investments in the game, in their ownership of it. At the end of the day, when you talk about Alabama, that's a state university. The taxpayer and the federal government either the state taxpayer or the federal government, built the campus and built the stadium. So there, there, there is clearly different kind of arrangements that are going here. Um, 
and I understand the Giants have built a team on the taxpayer in New York. That's, you know, what we've done the last 20 years at the NFL level is different than the 1920s, right? So there's differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've studied Yale football a lot and why they chose to leave Division One football. I mean, hey, when I was a kid, Yale was a legitimate Division One program. People don't remember that. Um, so I have a lot like this whole amateur slash profitable slash nonprofit schools, right? There's a lot of bizarre economic things. Like as an example, when UConn went to the Fiesta Bowl, the university lost $2 million. That's wow. the taxpayer. You would, it would have made, you would have thought it would have made the university money. So here's what happens if you don't know. And I've read a lot of books. When you get, go to a bowl game like the Fiesta Bowl, the school that is invited, so UConn, Big East, they're going to the Fiesta Bowl. They have to buy like 25,000 tickets from the Fiesta Bowl. Well, what okay. that means. So like a UConn mandatory payment. Yes. And yeah. then it's UConn's okay. responsibility to sell the ticket packages because we're in Connecticut. The Fiesta Bowl's in Arizona. They have to sell <laughs> the tickets, the hotel room, they have like packages. Now I'm sure you could probably just buy the tickets, but most of the people buy the package. Well, what happens Mm -hmm. is UConn doesn't sell enough tickets. So what happens is they pay for all that. Then they bring their band. They bring their dance unit. They bring administrators. And of course, everyone on the football team that they got, right? Whatever, if it's a hundred, I'm not sure how many they're allowed to bring, but whatever it is, that costs lots and lots mm-hmm. of money. But who does that benefit? That benefits the people who organize the Fiesta Bowl. Charged. There's a lot of money to be made in, in uh, hosting a bowl game. So in a true capitalistic society, why is Connecticut paying and have to buy tickets for the fiesta bowl that should be strictly the fiesta bowl's problem that that should not be connecticut's problem but they have and then it passes down to the to the ordinary fan yes and that's why notre dame in michigan will get like if you love football like i do they'll get invited to these bowls and you're like Wait, they're six and five, or you know, they're seven and five, and they're not really good. Like they won a game against an FCS opponent, or they won a two, so they're really against like top level competition. They're five and five, but yeah. because they're no because alumni will travel. Mm-hmm. What happens is the bowl will invite Michigan. Michigan will have to sell 20,000 tickets and they are more likely to get their alumni tickets than UConn. Does that kind of make, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, I was reading something about uh, recent going, goings on at Penn state where season ticket holders now make a, a regular voluntary contribution, but that voluntary contribution, there is a suggested donation amount. And yeah. not, not following that protocol might lead to you losing season tickets that have been in the family for a very long time. Yeah. Hey, look, UConn tries to get us to make voluntary. My friends are like, look, I'm a taxpayer, property taxpayer, state of Connecticut. <laughs> I paid enough. 
<laughs> I ain't making no voluntary. Like, look at man. So I get it. So let's talk about how this all developed. It's interesting because you asked me about the history. I'm going to go back a little bit to 19th century. And there's parallels here to the rise of soccer in England. And depending on how much yep. you and your listeners know, but they're a little different, but there's parallels. First thing you have to understand, college football began on the elite campuses, Yale, Princeton, Harvard. Princeton, yeah, yeah. So it began with the rich and the upper class. It did not begin as a working man popular sport. They weren't bringing in any uh, minorities, the working class, the poor. It was an Mm -hmm. upper class game. Now, why did they play it? As the frontier closed in America, and what I mean is from the Atlantic to the Pacific, the elite in America felt that their sons were soft and they wanted to make their sons prepared for war. Because we know if you study nationalism, especially in the 19th century, the wealthy were supposed to serve the nation in war. Now, they might have been officers. They In World War I, they might fly planes. But you had a kind of commitment as a patriot meant that you served the war. Winston Churchill fought, right, in the Boer Wars. We have it at Yale on campus. There is a... Um, a monument to those who died in World War I serving in the army. And it has all the um, names of the battles in which Yale alumni died in Europe in, in World War I, which is so like, it's mind blowing to my students because Yale students now in the modern world don't even think of, I shouldn't say it, a few, but very few think of joining the military, the military after getting, yeah. but in the 19th century, turn of the 20th century, you were supposed to. So, The elite in America felt their sons were growing soft. Well, how do you make them tough? Football is one of those ways, because I understand they believed in intellectual, but also physical, right? Like it's, you shouldn't be a 21 year old or 20 year old. Yes, you got to learn, you got to work your mind, you got to get an education, but you should have physical abilities also, and sports is one way to do it. They also and I don't know if you know this from England, but maybe some of you do. Olympics, England started the myth of the amateur athlete along with the French. The Greeks were not amateurs. What happened is in England and in France, they created the myth of the noble amateur athlete and that the Olympians should travel on their own dollar. Well, who did that leave out? The working class. England and France, upper class society, didn't want to compete with the working class in Javelin. Because there's no way a working class, you know, Londoner could travel to Switzerland to ski, right? And, And they weren't. So they created and the English and French and eventually American historians created this myth of the noble amateur athlete where if you understand the greeks that's bullshit the athletes were Mm -hmm. paid in prostitutes the athletes were paid in pensions the athletes were paid in land the athletes were paid in lot in women lots of different things 
slaves could get out of slavery by like it's it's absurd to think that the greek athlete didn't get paid but we've created and this all went to the way to the cold war i mean i'm a, i'm an old i remember the cold war when the russians and the americans you know only amateur athlete so we have this myth based on something that was never true for like a hundred years in the Olympics. Yep. Well, that worked its way down into college football. Also, who's going to colleges? The upper class in the 19th century. They also were white supremacists and they believed on social Darwinism and they taught at the Yale biology that Caucasians were of a superior race. So you have these kids with money, they're young adults, I should say, with money going to school and hearing that they are the upper class. They are superior to people of color. Well, if you're superior to people of color in the classroom, think about the next logical step. You're obviously mm-hmm. superior to them on the athletic field. Why would you? ever allow an African-American to play football at Yale. You wouldn't because because your racism says that the black athlete can't compete with you anyways. Mm. And then it's you- a strange, it's a strange racism as well, isn't it? Because it's uh, we, the, the, the idea that, that we as one group are above another in society, but also feeding into the, the stereotypes surrounding race. Yes. African Americans were always made out to be brutish, violent, ah, and and, and the, yes. slavery and and suppression was 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 a necessary evil. And that and it's a strange it's a strange relationship between those two ideas. Yes, and it worked its way to the working class, just like in England, no working class kid could throw a javelin as as well as the elite, right? Which is just mm-hmm. when you actually think about it, right? Like how crazy is that idea like like there's some genetic like like i get lebron james is a better basketball like but it's not because of the color of his skin that's just absurd Mm -hmm. right but this deep rooted when you sprinkle social darwinism white supremacy elitism right and a social structure at these institutions That's where football began. Football began at these elite institutions. Now, when you start studying Yale, what eventually happens is just like off. What does a coach want to do? What do they want to do? Win. So what are you Mm -hmm. going to do if you're a coach? Eventually, what are you going to do? You're going to start looking for the best players, wherever they come from. And eventually, like Yale, if you study Yale, the turn of the 20th century, they started, they called them ringers. Like they started bringing Uh in middle class kids and they actually have evidence of like 23 year old men playing football at Yale, like in 1903, (laughs) right? Because the coach wants to win. Now, a couple things happen. Coaches begin to become celebrities. Like, It just is this weird, these coaches, the early coaches, late 19th, early 20th century, become celebrities. Well, in a capitalistic society, how do you capitalize, no pun intended, how do you capitalize (laughs) on celebrity? Well, at that time, now you go to Twitter, you make a video, but then you wrote a book. 
So coaches started writing athletic manuals, like how to get in shape, how to play football. And they would tour in the off season and give coaching expeditions, teach their offense, teach their playbook, right? But they were making money. So what Mm -hmm. happens is coaches begin to make a lot of money. At one time, at the turn of the 20th century, coach, the Yale coach, and why, um, oh my God, he's the most famous coach. Why can't I remember his name now? All of a sudden, things getting old. Walter Camp. He's making more money than professors. Yeah. And this, oh, and this, you can still see that today. It's it's, it's beyond absurd, right? I mean, you could be the leading biologist at Alabama right? Get, have a PhD and you're making pittance. And I bet you he gets a good salary. Don't get me wrong. He's making a good salary. But if you compare it to Saban. Saban's taking millions. Over. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. nothing, right? So anyways, so th- then there starts to begin friction. Now, Yale's the first one, not, but they kind of see the ability that the football has to connect the school with the community. Yale builds the Yale Bowl, which is still there. I go to it now, built over 100 years ago. And in those days, it's bold because they built the bottom half of the stadium into the ground because of the technology. So it was bold. Yep. When you walk in the Yale Bowl, you actually go underground for about you know 40 rows, and then there's 40 rows above you. What Yale did in Harvard and Princeton – they realized that they could connect to the community through football. And one way to connect through the community was to bring as many fans into the game as possible. And long and behold, Yale builds the Yale Bowl, and all of a sudden they're getting 80,000 fans. Like it, and well, what does 80,000 fans mean? A lot of freaking money. You're talking 1910, 1915. You're bringing in on train, you're selling good, you're selling programs, you're selling, you know, banners, you're selling food. Boom. All of a sudden, Yale and Harvard and all them, the football team is bringing in massive amounts of revenue to this probe, to the university, but specifically the athletic department. So the Ivy Leagues got this first obviously and they under and then the military academies kind of join in army right army if you study college football army was huge you know in in the 30s 40s 50s even even turn the 20th century so because again the army was the elite young adults or at least those with connections going to west point and obviously you wanted to train the young cadets, you know, because obviously they're going off to war. That's the goal of West Point. Well, one way to train them at the time is perceived through football, right? It, they, they go naturally together, right? You're training young cadets. Mm-hmm. They're athletic. They have to work. They have to train. They're going to school, but you also get them to play football. And Army is one of the best programs for years. So what ha- So this college, and then you have World War II. So Ivy League does extraordinarily well and then it it catches on and i'm not going to get too much but you know eventually black athletes and competition now we had a little problem in america segregation especially in the south Mm -hmm. and i'm going to fast forward a little bit one of the places if you study the nfl like i do and it's led me to study college football more 
If you look at the rosters of the AFL in the 60s and the Cowboys and the Steelers of the 70s and the Packers too, believe it or not, you will see a lot of football players from the historically black colleges. Mm -hmm. What happens is because of segregation, the black athlete for large part for decades was shut out of the major college football programs. And what happens is the black athlete ends up going to the historically black colleges. One of the things the AFL, the NFL had an unwritten rule, how many black athletes could be on their team. If you study the AFL, one of the things that people like Hank Stram and Sid Gilman and some of the other coaches of the AFL did, they brought in more black athletes. What they realized was, Holy shoot, excuse my language. I was going to say something else. I was, <laughs> But they scouted the historically black colleges and they began to find athletes. And if you study Vince Lombardi, one of the most underrated aspects of his life is he's a civil rights hero and no one talks mm-hmm. about it. He actually has a, a gay player and he tells the player, I don't care that you're gay you can play on my team. And he never mentioned it to anyone. And um, Vince Lombardi always, if you look at those great Packers teams and you look at like the percentage of African-Americans compared to other NFL teams, you're going to see a big percentage on the Packers, especially on the defensive side of the football. And, Mm -hmm. and Lombardi never cared if you're black or white or anything. And that he was really a very fascinating man. Part of it is his Jesuit background going to Fordham. And part of it is he was an Italian. He's Italian descent at a time when there was a lot of anti-Italian bigotry in New York City when he was growing up and at Fordham. So he understood bigotry and that and because of his Jesuit upbringing and that kind of idea of universal manhood. I think there's a lot of very interesting things that people don't understand about Vince Lombardi, but I digress. So. You see this. Now, the Steelers of the 70s and the Cowboys, one of the reasons why they were great, they scouted the historically black colleges. And you look on those rosters, John Stallworth, Alabama State, Walter Payton, Jackson State went to the Bears. But you will see on a lot of those rosters, athletes from the historically black colleges where the Steelers and the Cowboys were ahead of the curve. A, the Steelers had a black scout, which was almost unheard of at the time. And he's actually in the Hall of Fame now, or he should be. He's definitely in the Steelers Hall of Fame. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if he's in the NFL Hall of Fame, but he should be. Because his job, basically, for the Roonies, was to scout the entire historically black colleges. Interesting, Chuck Knoll who grew up in Cleveland in a diverse community and played football with African-Americans and had a black coach, was also a huge civil rights advocate for equality. He was also a Jesuit who 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 had been educated in high school at these Catholic schools about like universal brotherhood of man. And you see both Lombardi and Noel were interested in their ideas about race. And you never hear one black athlete say anything bad about Chuck Noel. Very interesting man also. 
both very big civil rights. Now, obviously, let me get this right. They're football coaches. They want to win. But they're not going to let – but they also, as a human being, understood universal brotherhood. And they both had black athletes. Um, and they, they became stars under both of them, both very interesting men with similar backgrounds, very different. And one thing that's that neither man talked a lot. I guess Lombardi talked more than Noel. Noel was, Noel was like my dad. I always joke he grew up in that silent, a man should shut up. You don't have the more you say, uh-huh. the worse you look. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're really smart, you don't have to tell people you're smart. You just keep your mouth shut and they'll figure it out themselves. That's my dad. And that's kind of what Chuck Knoll was too. Very interesting man. Anyways, what happens? A very famous story. Well, obviously the SEC didn't lay, let in black athletes. Mm-hmm. So the H, the historically black colleges have, it's just this abundance of tremendous athletes. They have great teams, but they don't get voted because of prejudice and racism. The national press won't consider an historically black college a great team. They kind of like Grambling. They give some credit. But when you looked at all the top schools, you wouldn't see the historically black colleges, which is an interesting kind of how good would a Jackson State with Walter Payton have been in the early 70s, if they were playing Penn State, right? We don't know for sure. We don't know if they could have beaten Alabama. But there's a very famous story that I love. Bear Bryant, we all know Bear Bryant, Alabama. Well, he's coaching at Alabama segregated school. Very famous story. I think it's 66, 68. Not exactly sure. But USC comes to Alabama and obviously in California – USC has had OJ Simpson. Now Simpson's not on this team. So it's got to be about 68, 69, but they have tons of great athletes. Well, Alabama gets absolutely rolled by USC (laughs) and USC is loaded with black athletes. The famous, and I don't, you know, this is kind of like that urban legend you read about. You don't know what the quote exactly, but he basically says, I'm getting black athletes. And the people are like, no, you're not. (laughs) This is Alabama. We don't get black athletes. And Bear Bryant's like, let them stop me. And basically, Bear's like, he takes somebody with the stature of Bear Bryant to be the man to say that, doesn't it? Yes. And the rest. So he gets some black. I think the next year he literally has two or three black athletes out. I think they're defensive linemen. One, I don't, but slowly but surely. The SEC brings in the black athlete. Now, it's so strange. The SEC is dominant. And in my lifetime, I'm 54. When I was a child, SEC was segregated. Now they're not. Now what's what that's done is it's crumbled the HSC programs or historically black colleges. Because all those great athletes now, are you going to go to historically black college or the SEC? You go where the money's going. And, and, they, and, and what's happened is basically the SEC dipped into that same cultural geographical player pool of superior yeah. athletes in the South, and they just brought them from the HSC schools to the SEC campuses. So you have a long – I mean, college football is very – it is an interesting microcosm of American life and American history. It's deeply rooted there. There's something American about it. And look, it. 
I, so my intellectual friends, I don't like that word per se, but let's see my more knowledgeable ones. Okay. I'm a football fan and there's still a brute violence to the game. Now, a lot of data nerds and a lot of people I listen to don't necessarily want to talk about the brute violence. But at the end of the day, football is a violent game. Yes, some players are more violent than others. I get it. Some players stretch the rules. I get it. But at the end of the day, football is still a very violent game. Now, game. Miles, that does not mean that strategy and tactics doesn't play a role in the game it clearly does (laughs) and setting up your opponent and drawing up plays and but there is still a brute violence and that is both of them are kind of american you need the physical brute violent athlete to do their job tackle block hit stop but you also Mm -hmm. need an intellectual the coach who understands the game at a higher level the quarterback who understands the game differently. And that's why Peyton Manning was so good, right? He, he intuitively sees the game at a different level, right? So it is this unique combination of physical brute strength sprinkled on top with a level of intellectualism and insight that makes the game so wonderful Because if you love the game like I do from intellectual and cultural standpoint, you see it. You see it all the time. Um, As I like to love, I love offensive line blocking. And nothing gets me more upset than bad coaching and boring offensive line. I love trap Mm -hmm. blocks. I love cross blocks. I love double teaming. I love whamming. Like, A good coach creates a scheme that is intellectual, that is violent, that that brings something to the sport. And then I see I see like the Jets who have the worst. Just about to say, oh my god! It's like I'm I'm like, can you please do? uh, Can you pull a guard? Can you please like do? When you when when you started to say about good offensive line play, play, I was trying to say. I haven't seen good offensive line play since since I started watching the Jets. And we, we get the guy, Mackay Becton, in who is incredible in his first two games. And it's like, this is the rookie. This is the guy on his second start who is showing, you know, the, these guys who've been in the league for, for yeah. years. Maybe, maybe, maybe the bad Jets coaching hasn't quite ingrained itself. Maybe he's still got some Louisville coaching. Oh, my there. God, dude. Look at man, he's a great talent. They got to get Gase out of there. But I want to tell you one more story about social Darwinism and the danger of it. Mm-hmm. If you know American history, after um, uh, let me get the name of the wounded knee, it is the historical end of the Indian Wars. Basically, yeah. a wounded knee in the 18, early eighteen nineties. That's the last kind of time the federal government the u.s military they slaughter innocent indigenous people the sioux at wounded knee and that's basically history books that's the end of the conquering of the west because at that time every indigenous tribe is either conquered or on a reservation so after wounded knee 
in America, and a little before, I shouldn't say just, but during this, as we are conquering in the 1880s and 1890s, and it's kind of evident, unfortunately, that the indigenous tribes are defeated. It's just a matter of time. It's, it's just, it's evident. The Americans start, to, there's some Americans who say, okay, wait, we're good Christians. What do we do with these indigenous people now? And what came up at the time is to Christianize them, Americanize them. Yeah. And they opened up these lack of a, Indian schools. And that's a terrible word, but schools where but of its of its time. Of its time, yes. It was it was a phrase. And they stripped the indigenous person, they cut their hair, they changed their name to a Christian name, taught them English, like took away their culture and everything. Mm-hmm. And it's a complex some chiefs sent their children there. Some children were orphans. Some children just came. Like, it's a complex how this happened. But at the end of the day, thousands of children went to these schools who were indigenous. But one of the schools was Carlisle in Pennsylvania. And Carlisle wanted to, how do we make indigenous children American? And how do we prove that they're good Americans? One way Carlisle did was they embraced football. It's fascinating. They decided to have a football team. Now, at first, everyone, because of prejudice, social Darwinism, because of racism, no one believed that Carlisle could compete with Penn, Army, Yale, Princeton, Harvard. Now, it's for, for a myriad of reasons, culture, diet, life, indig- the indigenous people were smaller in general. In general, the white men were just bigger. It doesn't mean you're superior, but there's a lot of factors here over centuries of why. So what happened is when Carlisle first started playing, and they had less players. They, weren't pull, they were just pulling from those students who came on. They weren't recruiting, per se. They got some kids. Hey, let's play football. So what happened was they had Pop Warner played there, coach there, I should say. Sorry. And he realized he can't be the – lack of a better term, white elite schools, mono, mono. He doesn't yeah. have the size to put, you know, nine men on the offensive line. It was like a rugby scrum. I don't know if you've ever seen those old pictures. Just, they, they just push against each other and tackle. So what he did is he goes, wait, I'm going to lose this if I do this. Well, he was at least open-minded enough to embrace the opportunity of victory. And what I mean by that, if you study these tribes, the myth that they weren't athletic is absolutely absurd. And that's what the white men and social Darwinists promoted. And there's a great story in this book. And I love this story so much. When the, when the white man finally gets to the Great Plains, they're riding their horses with a saddle and spurs and a... Um, what do you put that? What is it around the horse? Uh, um, what do you call that? Oh, uh, we'd call them blinkers. blinkers. Is, is this for the controls yeah. the horse? I, I'm not a horse guy, so I forget. Anyways, so and then the white man looks at the indigenous tribes and go, "You have nothing. They're riding their horse on a blanket, and they think they're primitive." And that's the story I heard for decades. The Indian was mm-hmm. primitive. The white man was advanced. Now. I've read about the indigenous perspective. 
they thought there was something with the white man. You can't control your horse without a saddle. You need this. Yeah, you yeah, need this. Yeah. What is wrong with you? Why do you need a saddle and spurs and blinders to control a horse? We control our horse with none of that. And it's a fascinating how culture plays into the world. And the idea that because I have technology, that makes my culture superior. Now, what's even more fascinating, if you understand how the Sioux hunted the buffalo, they controlled the horse with no saddle and hunted buffalo with a bow and arrow. Can you imagine Mm -hmm. the athleticism that was required and the skill to not only control a horse in a herd of a thousand buffalo moving as fast as they can. And if you fall off that horse, you are dead. So you control the horse with a thousand buffalo and you kill it with a bow and arrow. So you have the athletic ability to control the horse and shoot a bow and arrow to kill the horse. The idea that the indigenous tribes were not athletic is the epitome of white supremacy. The reason I tell Mm -hmm. that, well, when you bring these players onto the football field, they are athletic. So what Pop Warner devised was a new strategy. I'm not going to attack brute force. That's absurd. I, I just don't have the seven linemen to push against the other side. So what he did is he used the speed. He did the classic. If you're going to use size and strength, I'm going to use speed and space. So he started running to the edges. He started getting his athletes out in space, which is essentially the spread offense. Carlisle Carlisle was doing this over 100 years ago. So it's fascinating because the white press calls Carlisle cheaters. Mm-hmm. So they're not playing by the uh they're not the playing by the rules of the game and the spirit yeah. of the game right yeah oh how very british of them. <laughs> well well we do know <laughs> we do know the white elite has a deep british history with it right <laughs> so i mean but right is and you they i mean you can see the primary sources of the new york media destroying carlisle now eventually and they're a good team they're they're going undefeated they're finishing in the top 10 gil thorpe went there if you know gil thorpe from the 1912 olympics wins the decathlon but they take the they take his medals away from him because he played minor league baseball in the midway it's absurd what they did to him anyways carlisle wants army and it is a deep you can imagine the cultural reasons why yep. Carlisle wants to defeat yep. Army. They can't defeat him for a long time. But they finally now have Gil Thorup, who's Jim Thorup, I'm sorry, Jim Thorup, who's by far the best athlete on the planet, at least in the Western world. I shouldn't say that. In the Western world, because he wins the decathlon and he was a great athlete. Finally, Yale, or sorry, finally Army plays Carlisle. Carlisle's good. Four future generals are on the football field, including Dwight D. Eisenhower, against Jim Thorup. And before the game, the coach 
says to the players in Carlisle, you've waited your entire life to get revenge against the United States Army. I'm not going to tell you anything else. Today is your day. Carlisle went out and beat Army and Dwight D. Eisenhower. Dwight D. Eisenhower was quoted saying, I've never seen anyone like Jim Thorpe in my entire life. Now that's the height of Carlisle football. Very fast, but that's the, the, to me, they best represent social Darwinism, elitism, racial ignorance, cultural differences. You know, if I have speed, why am I going to play a power game, right? I mean, (laughs) you'd be foolish, right? Like tonight, Arkansas State is playing Appalachian. Arkansas State, I would say, would be or coaching ineptitude if they ran the ball up the middle 30 times tonight. (laughs) You have athletes on the wing at wide receiver. You have two good quarter. Throw the football. Like, (laughs) you've got to play to your strengths. But there's – so there's – and you can teach a lot of American history through college football because the NFL doesn't pop up until the 1920s. And it doesn't really explode until the 50s, and it explodes again at the turn of the 20th, first century. Mm -hmm. But college football is, a, to me, a better microcosm of United States history of culture, racism. And NFL has its own problems, you know. But that's why I love college football. But it's interesting now that the Ivy Leagues are just nothing in the big scheme. And they started Mm -hmm. it all for many different reasons than we see today. It's interesting. You're talking about the the role that college football has played through history. And as you were talking through that and and how this sort of a parallel between the growth of the game or the the lifespan of the game and American history, a a few times when you were speaking, I I kept thinking back to Kylan Hill over the summer and thinking about how far America has come, how far they've still, you know, America has to go, but how far America has come that that a player of colour playing in Mississippi of, of all places okay. can turn around and say, I'm not playing until until that flag changes. And it just goes to show that how ingrained college football is in American culture and society and American politics. I mean, they, the, the bill that passed through the, the state Senate was referred to as the Kylin Hill bill. It's I mean, unbelievable. It just goes to show how, how, how much has changed. There are, there are steps still to be made. I mean, you know, we've seen... Um, Odell Beckham Jr. is not allowed to go to Baton Rouge for, for two years now for, for giving players some cash. Um, so there's, there's, a long, there's a long way to go in the college hey, game, so and, uh, particularly with the college athletes and, and getting them cash, rewarded. Cash has always been part of the college game. One of my favorite books is about Bear Bryant at Texas A&M when he's really young. This is, I think he's, he's after Kentucky, so he's probably early 30s. And in it are all these antidotes. Like he would literally go to the oil barons in Texas and be like, I want this player. And literally they would give him like $5,000 cash. And Bear (laughs) Bryant would then go to the family of the athlete and just give him cash. I mean, there's like Bear Bryant was as dirty as they could get at Texas A&M. Haven't read that many stories about Alabama. There's allusions to it. And there's stories, but we know for a fact that Texas A&M, he was dirty with that Texas oil 
in the fifties. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if it builds his program, I don't. Think hey, he ended up Alabama, and he's he, he's Bear Bryant, right? <laughs> yeah. You've you've mentioned in 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 the history of the game, you've mentioned the Ivy League to Bama to Texas A and M. I mean, it was it's hard enough picking an NFL team. Yeah. Okay, so for a Brit, you know, we're used to having <laughs> twenty teams in the Premier League, and then there's there's the leagues below that, but. There's 32 NFL franchises to, to to decide from, and I stumbled upon the Jets in the most innocuous of ways. <laughs> I feel um, for you, brother. <laughs> so, and, and it's been it's been a lifetime of misery ever since. So, so John, I need to get my my next decision right. I need to make sure that the the college team that that I pick is the right one for me. So what we're doing on the podcast with with my co-host Ash is we are doing the Lonely Hearts Club. And every week on the pod, he puts two programmes up against one another and he tells me about the history, um, about the Heisman winners, um, conference championships, national championships. And then I pick one one programme to go through to the next round. By the end of the season, I will have a programme to support. And what I want to ask you is I want your advice what advice are you going to give to me when making that decision? What should I be looking for when picking a team? So I thought about this a lot because being a Connecticut Yankee, I was I did not grow up as an SEC guy. I told you I watched <laughs> Michigan, Ohio State, Notre Dame. I would say seven out of ten weeks it was a Big Ten, Notre, and Penn State might be sprinkled in. So that's what I grew up with. The SEC was always there, and I remember Herschel Walker at Georgia, and obviously I watched him in the bowl games, but it wasn't part of the Northeast. However, now that I love fantasy football, NFL, and college, and I do draft profiles of athletes coming to the NFL, <laughs> you got to go with the SEC. I can't even believe I'm saying <laughs> it. And, and, and trust me, I like the Pac-12. I love the Big Ten. But if you're really looking for the best football, and, and that's a, that's a uh, subjective term, but I would say overall, the SEC is becoming even more of a magnet. It just, mm-hmm. success breeds more and more success. And right now I don't see that. That train is just barreling down the track so fast. The Big Ten and the Pac-12 can't even compete almost with it anymore. And the ACC, I like. I do love Clemson. I don't know. Dabo, what he's doing at Clemson is one of the great turnaround stories that people don't talk enough about. But I don't know what Clemson's going to be after Dabo. Like, you know, I've lived through Alabama being up and down, and now they're just, you know, they're on a, a rocket with Nick yeah. Saban. Yeah. But they, they've won other national championships since Bear. They've had good coaches. Now they've had a few downtimes. But I would go in the SEC. I mean – I, I, I'm shocked that I'm saying it, but I thought about Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Texas A&M, LSU, any of those five schools you could not go wrong from an historical standpoint. And what I see moving forward, they at the, the way the college football is structured, that conference and those programs have such an advantage over others right now, it would take a major reconstruction of in college football like at being absurd a draft the only way they could not for at least the next decade remain good is if they you'd have to overhaul the entire college football but i would go to the sec okay 
Well, from a from a practical perspective, the college football that's on on a Saturday here in the UK is via BT Sport and ESPN Player. Yeah. And those five o'clock kickoffs are, you know, more more times than not an SEC it game. Is. And, and and that's just the way it is. So it is, it, you know, from a practical standpoint, watching the game on a Saturday that makes it makes it good because obviously for me, I'm trying to watch as as much Clemson as I can at the minute, and and I'm very slowly falling in love with the quarterback there. But you know, some of those games, UK time, they're starting at half past midnight, one o'clock in the yeah, morning. Yeah. And if you're staying if you're staying up late in in the UK on a Sunday night as well, it can become it can become a hell of a weekend if you if you're staying up you know, into the early hours of the morning on, on, on both of your nights on the weekend. Yeah, if it was 10 or 15 years ago, my friend, I could have said my maybe 20 years ago, University of Miami, Ohio State, Michigan, there's so many more. But now it's really just becoming so SEC dominate, which I don't know is good for the game in the long run. We're going to find out. I, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, people forget how good the University of Miami was. And you talk about, we mentioned Carlisle, but if you study Miami football in the eighties and early nineties, they did the same thing Carlisle did. They brought in the urban kids, the Michael Irvins, the Eddie Browns, and all of these unbelievable athletes, but they were brash. They were outgoing, very different than what college football was used to. You know, they were not the noted and, and there was nothing better than being a kid than Catholics versus conflict convicts it was Notre Dame versus Miami (laughs) that those games were just so good but Miami changed the culture of college football too very much but now Miami's a good program but I can't tell you to love Miami because it's changed so dramatically being in the ACC and Mm. now the, the talent just keeps going to the SEC that wasn't the same 20 25 years ago and that's one thing about the, the the big distinction for me between the NFL and the college game is there is that that socialist principle at the heart of the NFL, yes, which is. is the worst team gets the first pick, yeah. and and that's all about redistributing the wealth. In the college game, there is a huge inequality. You know, you see all of these five star recruits. You know, if you're an edge rusher, Florida are going <laughs> to come going. knocking for you. You know, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No, you know that huge inequality. You just said something very interesting because the. NFL, my friends don't like when I say, but NFL is socialism. They share television revenue. The draft is socialism in a free, true market. <laughs> you know, theoretically, Trevor Lawrence could go to Bill Belichick next year, right? I mean, in a true free market, that's what would happen. <laughs> now, college football is much more capitalistic because every player can choose where they want to go. Now, I'll have arguments why you have to sign this contract, but that those, but in general, College football, the athlete chooses the school, and the school can recruit who they want. In the NFL, if the Jets draft Trevor Lawrence, that's basically <laughs> it, right? I, I mean, that's it. He doesn't really have any choices. So it's much mm-hmm. – yes, I agree. So it is an interesting dichotomy. But then the college football, as I alluded to earlier, the campuses and the taxpayer did build these programs. And that is kind of one of the weird things. These are public institutions. Most of them, Miami's private, USC's private. (laughs) Vanderbilt, I believe, is definitely private. I'm trying to think if there's, is there anyone else? And ironically, Vanderbilt's at the bottom of the SEC. Um, (laughs) Let me look. I don't think any of these, I could be wrong, but I think all the other schools are, are state schools. You know, I mean, that's why in UConn, I'm a state, I work, 
in Connecticut, live in Connecticut, I pay taxes. UConn, you know, we built UConn, this is the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. Yes, they get some money from alumni and everything. But look, at the, at the end of the day, the taxpayer built that campus. And, and I guess you can sort of, you know, as part of your fandom, you can you can hark back to that and you can say, you know, I've con- I've contributed to this programme all my working life. Yes. Uh, one other way that, that I'm trying to get into the game and, and some of our listeners we've invited to a, a fantasy football league yeah. uh, for the first time this year. Now, the only um, the only place to get your fantasy football in, in the college game this year is, is via fan traps. Yeah. And I know it's... We've had some issues in the last couple of weeks, but hopefully by week eight we'll have we'll have the scores. The, the good thing about having fantasy football is obviously following accounts like yours to to pick up on some sleepers, but also to to find players that that you weren't aware of, and and sometimes making huge mistakes. You know, I I dropped Deuce Vaughan after two games this year. Um, since then, he's been picked up and he's he's on fire. Oh so I'm, I'm never gonna I'm never gonna forget the name Deuce Vaughn. When he comes into the NFL, I'm gonna be telling all of my friends, "Listen, this guy's gonna blow it up because he ruined my fantasy." <laughs> and I think I wrote one. about him in the first waiver wire column because I saw that game and he was so good. Now he's not a workhorse; he'll never get 30 touches a game. Maybe when he's a senior, who knows? But I mean, but he is so efficient with those limited touches, and then. Just like we were talking about, you know, he's so successful. Kansas State schemes him into the open field so well. I mean, there's just sometimes where you don't see a defender like anywhere near him, but that's entire scheme. They just put him in that position where he can use his extraordinary vision, his speed in space, and no one touches him. Now, there's, there's one thing that I'm quite scared to to confess and that is when we set up our fantasy football league we only allowed players from the the power five sure. minus the pack 12 uh, to be picked now looking at a lot of your work you're looking at uh, smaller school guys yeah, yeah a lot of guys that i see in your you know waiver wire pickups or sleepers i can't pick up because they're not in our player pool um have i taken a little bit of the fun out of college fantasy football by doing so I think you have I mean this is my 12th season playing college fantasy football to me the biggest thrill is I've got to know 130 teams and it is yeah but (laughs) when I started 12 years ago there was almost zero information specifically at college fantasy football now there was college football but you had to filter everything into your own lens and you had to go like you had to search for it Now there's more people giving you information. But like tonight, it is 548 on the East Coast. Within an hour and 45 minutes, Arkansas State, Appalachian State is kicking off. I'm going to love that game. I'm going to love that game. Now, if I didn't have Jonathan Adams and I didn't have Dahu Green and I don't have Thomas Hennigan, would I probably be watching that game tonight? Eh. But now that I got them, guess what, You've my gotta friend? you got to watch it. Yeah. And I know, so here's another guy I've written about, and I don't know if you know the name. You, you, Cornelius Brown, the fourth of Georgia State. <laughs> I've seen him three times. He is an awesome college football player. I don't think he's an NFL prospect. There's a difference. Mm-hmm. But, man, to watch him play college fantasy football is just extraordinarily fun. It's so much fun. 
So I do, and I tell anyone, hey, and most people only pay power, I, well, I don't know. It seems like a lot only play power five, but there's definitely a huge, huge crowd that plays all 130. If you really want to challenge yourself next year, go for the 130. It seems daunting, yeah. but you look at you can do it. Trust me. It just it's you just have to do more work, but it opens you up to everyone. And I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you said at the beginning, you know, one of the most fun parts of it, when you said fun, I was thinking that's the scary part. Because I don't want to be passing up on, you know, a small school guy that's going to get 25 touches a game. That, and awesome. He's going to be knocking on 100 yards every week. Yes. And, and going for the for the big names. So, you know, I might be persuaded. You never know. We'll see. We'll see how this year yeah. goes. <laughs> Obviously, it was, it was a bad year to start fantasy football because people were getting picked up and then opting out. So you've got guys like Jamar Chase who are sitting on oh. rosters or, or have been released. And it, it's a real shame in, in that regard. Uh, but maybe next year we'll open it up to we'll open it up to everyone, and um, well, yeah, it might be chaos, but we'll have fun while we the do. Chaos it. is all right, my friend. <laughs> it's all right. We like chaos. I mean, this is Embrace a fantasy game. Let's have chaos. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, there's a lot more players to scout. Yeah. Beyond that, are there any other key differences between? NFL fantasy football and for the college game. So, yes, a bunch. One, quarterbacks are so important in college fantasy football. The ceiling is so incredibly high on a weekly basis. Now, you do have NFL games. I get it. Russell Wilson and, and um, uh, you know, Cam Newton will go off, okay? But in college fantasy football, that ceiling of the dual threat Yep. quarterback is so incredibly valuable because when you and that's why like Cornelius Brown is so interesting he's getting one rushing touchdown two or three throwing touchdowns 60 yards rushing and 200 yards passing you're like what? <laughs> I'm freaking out. <laughs> like Deshaun Watson was so good in college fantasy football now he's great in the NFL but in the NFL you might only get from your quarterback. Like last year, Lamar Jackson was all-time great. You might only get four games over 30 points, and that's great in NFL. When Lamar Jackson was a sophomore at Louisville and I had him, I think he had five games over 40 points and like two games over 50, and he never had less than 28. Like he was just Mm -hmm. silly at Louisville, like ridiculously. So you've got – You've got to have that type of flexibility or that type of quarterback. You have to acquire a dual threat. Also, I recommend you have to play with two quarterbacks. If you're going yeah. 130 to even in a power five, if you play with a one, I, I actually don't even do it anymore. I will not play in a one quarterback, 130 teams. Ridiculous. They're, they're, they're not even valuable because the waiver mm-hmm. wire is just loaded with you got to play two quarterbacks so that there's at least 36 of them, you know, because each team, if you're in a 12 team league, I would assume at three quarterbacks per team. So at least 36 quarterbacks are off the waiver wire. Then you have bye weeks and you have injuries. So it, it makes the, it makes the Trevor Lawrence even more valuable. The Sam Ellinger's he's just having a ridiculously great season. But that, mm-hmm. that is only more valuable in the two-quarterback league. 
So to me, you got to have the two quarterback league and you got to find your dual threat quarterbacks. You need to draft them. Then at wide receiver, go with a half point PPR. You don't need the full point. Also go with four receivers or three receivers and have a flex option. Because you want to delete, you want to make, you were talking about Jamar Chase, right? You want to make Jamar Chase more valuable. If you only go with like 24 receivers out of 130 teams, there's there, there's mm-hmm. like no value there. But like when you have 36 receivers and if every team has six receivers, that's 72 receivers off the board. Now, who am I picking at receiver number 34? Who am I taking at receiver number 30, 48? Those are very valuable players. You know, I, I just finished writing about, I'm publishing tomorrow, Dax Milne of BYU has just been spectacular. He's only on 9% of waiver wire. Oh, you don't even have Zach Wilson available, do you? Yeah. That, that, you know, that's my biggest regret. Watching Wilson to Milne in the highlights last week, I was thinking, why have we not? Yeah. Because, See, because Notre Dame are technically an ACC team. When I went to the independent yeah, yeah, programs, yeah, yeah. I sort of clicked on Notre Dame and then just in my naivety thought, well, they're the only independent program that's going to be playing any sort of meaningful football. So we'll just stick Notre Dame in. Completely ignored BYU. And Zach Wilson could have been a league winner for, for certain players. I year. have a team with Zach Wilson and Trevor Will, Trevor Lawrence. Now, I didn't draft Wilson. I picked him up after week one on the waiver wire. I mean, okay. I think last week the two of them combined for over 80 points at the quarterback. So position. we... We had yeah. uh, five touchdowns and 400 from Trevor and then 404 from Zach Wilson. I mean, it's crazy. game over, surely. So, so that's another reason why you want 130, my friend, all the teams. You don't want to miss out on Zach Wilson. Like, I just mm-hmm. – I want to be – and if I lose, hey, if someone else picks him up with the waiver wire and I don't get him, that's fine. But the point is I had the option. <laughs> of picking up every good player that's going to be out. It's up to me to get him. But what you're describing is you have this phenomenal quarterback who is so much fun to watch and you can't even enjoy him. Right. And, and yeah. <laughs> that just breaks my heart. Like I just, that just, breaks oh, it's bre- it, don't worry. It's breaking mine <laughs> as well. When I see the highlights, it's breaking mine too. So, I mean, I would definitely recommend that. And I will say this in college football, there are not a lot of PPR running backs. The, yeah. the game is different. If you have 30 receptions, that is a phenomenal amount of receptions. You're not going to have Le'Veon Bell. What did he have? 78 receptions last year. You know, Kamara with 82 receptions. It is very rare that you get that many. You're looking for touchdown equity at the running back position. And tight end is the Gordian knot of college football. It's a every year. It's a nightmare. Every if you get a tight end who's good, you are so happy in college fantasy football because it is such a struggle. To you think NFL tight ends are hard, college fantasy football tight ends are just so much more difficult. So if I if I can uh, brag for just a minute, yeah. my tight ends this year are, of course, Kyle Pitts. Oh, unbelievable. But I've also picked up Carrie Angeline at North uh, North Carolina State. He's been good, and he's he's had a good year fantasy wise. Yes. So 
I've done well at tight end. Not not great at running back. Puka Williams was my. Oh, my, dude! My I had him on three ball, teams. So. I had him too. Yeah. I like. Look, you know what? The I'm shocked. The program's completely fall. I'm shocked. I can't believe Les Miles. Yeah, it's one of the programs. I'm totally shocked that it would fall that bad at Kansas. I, I'm just blown. Away. And the the worst thing with with Puka Williams was that. Was it 96, 98 yards last weekend back to the house? It's like, all oh, right, it's on special teams, so it means nothing to my fantasy <laughs> team whatsoever. So great, well done, but it means nothing to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, John, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've learned so much from both a, a history perspective, which which fascinates me. American history is my uh, area of interest, but also learning about the game and, and fantasy football. We must have you on again in the future to talk college ball because it's been an absolute pleasure. It'll be my pleasure. I can't thank you enough. I think you're the first person across the pond who's asked me to come. I'll give you my old Yankee the other side of the pond. You know, that's yeah. how I grew up. But um, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. What I'm going to do is I'm going to send you um, a couple history of college football books that I think if you want, you will love them. I'll put them in your Twitter um, I'll put a, uh, uh, the name, the author. Trust me, if you want, you'll love the two books I'm going to recommend. That sounds that sounds right up my street. And with right. Christmas around the corner, I can put it on my list and send it to Santa. That sounds perfect. No problem, Mike. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And Rush Nation, I really do hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. It's been an absolute pleasure to have John on and we hope to have him on again in the future. Uh, Keep an eye out and your ears out for Sunday morning when we will be giving you the Breakfast Club and running through Saturday's results. And of course, the flagship show coming to you next Wednesday. Take care and keep rushing. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.